Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Stephen True. Stephen is the mastermind behind the blog Young Vesters. After bouncing around eight jobs in different industries within the first two years of graduating, it was at this point Stephen became a young vester, a person in the early stages of learning how to achieve financial independence. He set himself the ambitious goal of reaching financial independence before age 40, and real estate plays a big part of this. In my interview with Stephen, we discuss reaching your savings goals sooner, coming out ahead as a home buyer in hot real estate markets, and affordable places to buy houses in the GTA. Without further ado, here's my interview with Stephen True. Hi Stephen, how are you doing today? It's going well. Yourself, Sean? Pretty good, thanks. So in 2010, while you were still in university, your wife and you set yourself the ambitious goal of buying a house before age 25. Tell us what motivated you to buy real estate, a house in Toronto, no less. It's a great question, Sean. I actually remember this really clearly. So Amanda, my wife now, but a girlfriend at the time, we were both in second year university remember us sitting in class and we came across an article that talked about how hard it would be for millennials to afford a home in Toronto. And we kind of joked about it at the time and said, wouldn't it be funny if we were able to do it before 25? Kind of didn't take it too seriously at the time because we already had almost racked up almost $10,000 each in student loan debt. So we were kind of just thinking to ourselves like, you know, there's no chance, but you know, we can joke about it anyways. But something really changed. Um, When we started getting part-time jobs and starting to realize that we could start to set aside some money after every paycheck, it kind of seemed like, you know, it was starting to become within reach. But although we saw the possibility, a lot of our friends and family kind of doubted us and thought we were extremely crazy. A lot of the things were going against us. For one thing, the economy was just recovering from the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. So a lot of companies already were setting hiring freezes for new graduates and summer opportunities that we likely would never have an opportunity to get. And then we, we saw other graduates as well in our program. They were just struggling to just find full-time employment. So it'd probably take a graduate um, in our program about six months to about a year to find full-time employment, all while they're trying to pay off their student loans. To make matters worse, our parents didn't take us seriously either, but we actually don't blame them because we were living with them at the time. <laughs> they knew that just by looking at us struggling to pay our own tuitions and our textbooks without their help, they saw the stuff that we were having to go through ourselves. They didn't think much of it anyways. We, you know, we had all this stuff that was going against us. And quite honestly, like, you know, we kind of use this as extra motivation. So we, there's all this stuff that we had, all these challenges that we saw that was in front of us. We kind of didn't see them as challenges. We saw them as opportunities to kind of break the barrier, um, to kind of buck the trend and, and do something different and be able to achieve that goal that we both were really thought we had an opportunity to do so. And I mean, being a homeowner in Toronto is 
quite impressive. So I certainly think that you should pat yourselves on the back. Certainly, it's a great accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So on that topic there, some millennials are choosing to rent instead of buy. They're discouraged by the high home prices in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Why is real estate still a good long-term investment? I think a lot of the discouragement actually comes from thinking that real estate prices will continue to go up forever by double-digit returns. And it kind of makes it seem like home ownership dreams seem far out of reach. Um, but that's kind of far from the truth. Um, the beauty of real estate and any other asset classes is that they don't go up in prices forever. Like, for example, we're already starting to see in some areas in Toronto and outside of Toronto see a 10 to 15% price correction from last year, which means it's better to buy this year than it was last year for some areas. And your question about why real estate is a good long term investment, it generally makes sense because we all need somewhere to live. Buying a home allows you to pay rent to yourself instead of your landlord, over time, what that actually does is that it kind of forces you to save money because every portion of your mortgage payment will go towards the principal of your home, which helps you start building equity immediately. It's definitely possible to come ahead as a renter, but you know, by saving the difference that you would have been able to save had you not had to own the property and make mortgage payments. But I've seen very few people have the discipline and are able to actually do that. So what ends up happening most of the time is that uh, renters would end up spending whatever they save while homeowners are forced to come up with that extra mortgage payment. Over the long term, this can easily translate to over $1,000 in additional savings. Another good reason that owning real estate is a good long-term investment is that it's kind of one of the cheapest forms of an investment loan. A mortgage, it's, it's like an investment loan in a sense that it allows you access to buy real estate assets. So for example, in Toronto, you can already see that Toronto real estate prices um, historically have returned 6 to 8%, if I'm correct, um, over the last 20 years. So the beauty of this is that when you're buying a home, for example, let's say at $500,000 and it's earning or growing at 6 to 8% per year, the mortgage that you started with, let's say $400,000 decreases over time. So you're, you're getting that compounded growth on that full value of the house while your loan decreases over time. So that's like a huge win. The best part of all of this is that the, any of the gains that you realize from the sale of your house is tax-free as well. If you live in the home and you claim it as your primary residence, and that's like the biggest plus for me, being able to own something tax-free and own an asset class that's going to historically over the long term, and I'm not talking about flipping houses or anything like that, Sean, uh, more so talking about something that you're, you're going to live in for the next 10, 15, 20 years. You know, it's, it's something that historically has proven that it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow over time. You've made some great points, and certainly on the point of buying versus renting, I've seen many people mention, oh, by investing, you can come out ahead by renting. But like you said, people just don't have the discipline to do that. So certainly, if you're willing to stay put in a property for at least five years, then there's a lot of merit to buying instead of renting. And and as I like to say, might as well pay your own mortgage than the landlord's mortgage. So that's kind of how I see it. No, I see it the same way. Exactly. You kind of just stole the words out of my mouth. (laughs) Great minds think alike. (laughs) (laughs) On the topic of saving, coming up with a down payment is often a struggle, especially for younger people. What tips do you have for first-time homebuyers to reach their savings goal sooner? And feel free to talk about your own experience with saving your down payment. The hardest part 
quite honestly, is establishing good habits and discipline. For Amanda and I personally, we really wanted to make home ownership a possibility. Uh, so we immediately started changing the way we began saving. The first thing we did immediately was setting up an automatic transfer to a joint high savings account. What ha- had happened was that uh, every paycheck, half of it would automatically get transferred to our joint high savings account that we promised not to touch. And we both mutually agreed that it would be used to put towards a down payment on our house. This was kind of one of the hardest things for us to do personally, because as we were saving, um, it reached a sizable amount and we, we considered buying a car, taking a one month trip to Europe and all this other fancy stuff that we considered doing, but we kind of resisted. The other half of our paycheck was to be used for monthly spending. And at that time we were also paying monthly rent to our parents after we graduated. Um, so a portion of it went to rent, but for that remaining half that's there, we had it to use it for anything else we'd like to use it for. The second biggest thing that I, I think that would benefit everyone, uh, including your listeners, because it helped us tremendously, is uh, paying with cash for all our everyday purchases instead of a credit card. Uh, this was extremely difficult at the beginning. Amanda and I were both so used to paying everything with credit card that a lot of the times we often lost track of how much we spent at the end of the month. So we always had a, a shock at the end of the month where we would open up that statement and we would ask ourselves, like, how did we spend over a thousand dollars that month or a couple hundred dollars that month? It changed us completely when we kind of just told ourselves to just start paying things with cash. Psychologically, what it was really doing to us was it stopped me from buying morning breakfast and tea before uh, my way to class. Also, uh, stopped going out for lunch as often because I really didn't want to break a bill and hold loose change. That's kind of how I saw it. Psychologically, what it did to Amanda was that she started to shop a lot less. So we both attended Ryerson University. So on our way to class, it's like we're always passing by Ian Center. Before she would use to shop during her breaks, um, after class or before class. And it was just really easy for her because she always had that credit card in her hand. But that all changed. The mindset all changed when she had to start paying with cash. Because when she saw something she liked, she would have to walk over to the ATM and literally speaking, have to withdraw that money before she bought a sweater or a pair of jeans. And she had to think twice about everything she bought. So that kind of psychologically made her buy a lot less things. And the best part of this whole thing um, with paying for cash is it kind of forced us to be a lot smarter shoppers. So we started doing things like we never done before, price matching, comparative shopping, buying the daily special for lunch or dinner so that we could kind of stretch our dollars further. And then this whole thing about online shopping and stuff, it's, it's getting it's getting a lot of popularity. We couldn't do any of it because we couldn't pay for it with cash. It stopped us from doing a lot of our online shopping that we used to do in the past. And, and that really kind of helped us build our, our sizable down payment, being able just saving half of that uh, paycheck every month. Those are some great strategies. I mean, as I mentioned in my book, there have been studies that say that when you pay with a credit card instead of with cash, you tend to spend uh, over 15% more. So certainly speaking from personal experience, when I'm spending cash, there's a lot more pain than when I'm spending a credit card. They make it as easy as possible with PayPass and these other services where you tap your credit card. And those small things don't seem like much when you're tapping your credit card, but they can certainly add up to a lot of money at the end of the the month. So certainly uh, by paying in cash for certain things, I, I think that's a great piece of advice with uh, places like Starbucks. They make it as easy as possible to spend money with their app. But if you uh, aren't careful, you can end up spending 
over $100 a month on, on Starbucks. And so suddenly those two, three, $4 coffee trips add up to a lot of money. It, just think of it kind of like a cleanse, right? Try to pay for cash for like one week and see how far you go and see how much you can save. Because like, I think just changing that one little thing um, as part of the lifestyle, because um, it, it changed us for sure. Like it, it, it kind of worked wonders for us, I, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that strategy, I think for daily spending for stuff like going out for coffee and clothing and stuff like that, uh, it definitely makes sense. Uh, but one thing I want to mention to our listeners is when you're going to buy real estate, it's important to take the necessary steps to build a credit score because if you have thin credit, which means that you don't really have that much of credit history, then you can get lead to problems getting a mortgage. So 222 rule says that you should have two credit cards with at least a $2,000 limit, and you should have them for at least two years. So have a two-year credit history on them. And if you don't have that, then you can have something called thin credit, which basically makes it harder to get a mortgage later on. So certainly by being responsible with your daily spending and paying in cash instead, it can help you not give in to those impulses. But certainly it's important to build a credit score and credit history as well. Great. So bidding wars can be frustrating. Now you ended up losing on eight bidding wars before you bought your house. I, I thought it was bad when I lost on three, but eight definitely takes the cake. So how did you manage to stay motivated after losing out on all those bidding wars? Yeah, it was a it was definitely a crazy ride, crazy journey indeed. Our budget, we initially set a budget of six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars and we were looking for like a detached bungalow in East Short. At that time, we thought it was very reasonable. We thought it was a sizable budget. We were looking at the last six months of sales data in the area, and we had no reason to believe that we our budget was so far out of reach. So so let me give you an example. The very first house we put an offer on was a detached bungalow uh, listed for $499,000. Um, again, it was in East Shore, and it needed a whole bunch of work. Um, you know, We were prepared, prepared to do a little bit of work, but we saw that there was potential in the house, so it was something worth considering. The owner had disclosed that there was one water entering in the basement. So there was definitely some foundational issues and they were totally upfront with it. The sellers had actually provided a home inspection reports to everybody. So when we went to the open house, we we literally fell in love with it. It was exactly what we really wanted, like in terms of the size. And, and we thought it was something that we can definitely grow into and fix things as they came along. This open house is actually really interesting. It's funny. Um, when you go to open houses, there's usually like tea or sometimes donuts or whatever the case may be. But the listing agents for for this uh, open house is actually giving a loaf of bread to everybody that attended. So it was, it was actually quite funny. So we ended up putting an offer of uh, $600,000 conditional on home inspection on our, on our own home inspection. And it actually ended up selling for $650,000 without any conditions on offer night. Wow. So that was uh, been shocking. Yeah, that, that was shocking. So that kind of, this was like a huge test to us. It was just like, okay, I, we thought we, we set forth or put forth a really strong offer, but I guess we didn't. The second offer that we made actually blew us away. And this, this is the one that kind of broke the camel's back, so to speak. We saw a detached bungalow. It was listed for $599,000. Again, it's in the same area. We put an offer of $650,000 on it. Again, we put a condition uh, for home inspection and it ended up selling for $850,000 on offer night. Wow. So that's, that's two crazy. That's, yeah, no, it's crazy. So again, it's $250,000 over list. Houses like that never sold for like that in the area ever before. So what ended up happening was like, I'm guessing, but I, I might be totally crazy or wrong, but I think the buyers loved the house so much because it was in such pristine condition that they'd do anything they could or whatever they had to do 
to make sure that they got the house. But this is problematic for us, right? So setting a six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar budget meant that we probably could no longer afford any bungalows in the area any longer. Because Sean, like you know, the last price that the house sells for on the street usually is the last price that it will end up selling for going forward because it kind of sets a precedent because it's like a comparable now. Like it's the most recent comparable. So everybody, including the sellers, the, the listing agent, are expecting a minimum of at least somewhere within that ballpark. So again, our, our budget was completely out of whack. So we kind of had to adjust our expectations a bit. We started looking out a little bit more east. Um, we started exploring other neighborhoods and we realized that we had to be a little bit more strategic about how we made our offers. So we knew we can't go in there with making any offers with the condition. It had to be a completely clean offer on offer night. So what we actually started to do was that um, we started to look at houses before they actually had an open house um, to kind of just give us a little bit of a leg up. We actually started to schedule home inspections before we put an offer on the house so that we could put clean offers. So if there was any concerns or anything like that, we could uh, ask questions or raise it ahead of time. Something that we found really useful, um, and I think your viewers might find useful as well, is for us personally, like we, we kind of put offers on multiple houses and we had to do multiple home inspections. So what we did initially was that we kind of negotiated ahead of time with our home inspector. Originally, he was charging, I believe it was about $400 per home inspection. We kind of committed to doing four home inspections with, with the individual, and he, he said he would charge us $300 on a go-forward basis. So that was pretty sweet uh, on our end. So I don't know if your viewers are going to be making multiple home inspections, but I, I found that kind of useful or helpful. That's a great tip. I didn't even think of that myself. That That's the under the assumption that you're going to be making multiple bids and putting offers on homes that you, you're not going to end up getting, right? So I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but something <laughs> that's worth considering, so to speak. The other thing that we also did was that we started making preemptive offers or what they call bully offers. So a lot of homes were, or a lot of listing agents were saying that they, they wouldn't accept offers unless it was on offer night or whatever the case may be. We, we would try to make bully offer, so to speak, um, whenever we had the chance, because nobody's going to re- refuse a reasonable offer, right? So for us, like we, we tried doing that as well. We actually tried to do everything we could to understand the sellers, like the preferred closing date. And if it's possible, we, we tried to make them not have to do an open house. So for example, like sometimes there, you, you would know for a fact, uh, just by looking at the homes, if there was like a, a baby crib or, or something that was in the home, you can kind of assume or it's safe to assume that the sellers are parents um, so they probably don't want to go through an open house so potentially that bully offer or that preemptive offer that you're going to make might be quite attractive to somebody like them the other thing that we did to kind of refine our offer or kind of make our offer look a little bit more attractive was we we asked to throw in um, if we saw like a furniture or dining set or something that was in the home that that we wanted to keep we would ask that to do be included in our offer as well what that actually ended up doing was that we would revise our offer price accordingly so we would kind of up it a little bit so if there was going to be a dining set that we knew we were gonna it was going to cost us a thousand dollars we might up the offer price by like five hundred dollars if there was like a gazebo that was there that we probably would end up buying in the near future we would up it by another five hundred dollars for example all this little stuff that adds up to kind of make the offer price look a lot more attractive than some of the other offers. The real thing though, uh, quite honestly with you is that even though it was a struggle throughout this entire process, we kind of try to keep our emotions in check. What we did was we were always looking at daily sold reports. So we saw that there were times where houses would sell for houses that we really thought that we had no shot at getting, and they ended up selling for a lot less than what we would be willing to pay for. So that was crazy. One of the things that we found was that we had to be patient. You know, it's going to take a little bit of luck. We managed to buy a house, 
somewhere within our budget and it only took eight tries to make it work. So, so we, we were extremely lucky, so to speak. And I'd be curious, how long did it take you to actually find a property in terms of months or years and what strategy worked in the end on the property that you eventually ended up buying? I would say we probably spent a good uh, six to eight months seriously looking for us, like we, we try to put in a preemptive offer on the house, but the sellers weren't accepting of it. But for us, we could kind of just lucked out on this one. Like it was really straightforward. I think a lot of it was really luck at the end of the day, because I think there was other houses that were listed on the, on the street at the same time. So I don't think anybody else was looking after or kind of gunning for the house that we were looking for. So I think that kind of worked to our advantage. That's great. And being flexible helps as well. So as you mentioned, don't be too laser focused on one neighborhood. Open up your horizons to other neighborhoods because similar to you, I was laser focused on a neighborhood and just kept losing out on bidding wars. But once I considered other neighborhoods, it didn't take me long to find a house. As a homeowner, closing costs are something that sometimes blindsides new homeowners. So what closing costs surprised you, if any, as a homeowner? For us, we kind of knew what we would get ourselves into um, in terms of closing costs. So that's like land transfer tax. Um, we knew that was going to be about $15,000. Lawyers fees and closing uh, and other closing fees was going to bring up another couple of thousand dollars. So none of that was really surprising to us because we knew what we were kind of getting ourselves into. But I would say the biggest thing that kind of surprised us was what it cost to kind of just maintain the home. So for us personally, like we did a home inspection on the house that we bought. And we thought the house was in pretty good shape just based on the home inspection report. We had no reasons to doubt it. But over these last couple of years of home ownership, we kind of had to put in, I would say, at least a good few thousand dollars into the home that we kind of never expected that we would have had to put in. So some examples of this was that um, when we bought our house, actually, we didn't even know our, our east drafts needed replacing. So throughout the house, actually, the east drafts were actually quite old, but it wasn't actually uh, caught on the home inspection report. It was actually, there would be parts of the, the east draft that was kind of like dripping. It was kind of like a mini Niagara Falls, so to speak. Um, it, yeah, so it, it, was in, it was in certain areas that we, we saw it, but we knew it was something that we would have to play, uh, replace within a couple months of buying the house. So that's like $1,500 off the bat, something that, we, that just kind of threw, threw us off. The other ones was there was just that recent uh, windstorm this early April that kind of took off a quarter of our shingles. And our roof was relatively new. It was brand new. It was replaced in 2015. And we bought our house in 2016. So it was only about a year old. So we ended up having to fork over another $500 to hire roofers to fix the roof. Just this past winter, our furnace broke. The furnace would trip every time that it, it tried to turn on. So all you hear is like a tick, tick, tick sound. It was probably like minus 30 um, last uh, last winter when it happened. So we had to call the furnace guy over. That's like another $500. But the list kind of goes on. Like the, the last one, the one that really hurt us was that um, we bought the home thinking that the laundry machine and the dryer would have at least another few years of life in it because at the time of the home inspection, it was working perfectly fine. But six months into it, those went out on us as well. Uh, wow, both of them broke at the same time? The dryer was always kind of on and off. We, we knew there was something wrong with that, but... We, we could live with it because there was a lot of times we, we wouldn't use a dryer anyways. Mm -hmm. it, it couldn't do a full load in terms of the dryer. It, it would work with a, a little smaller load. But for the, the, the laundry machine, it kind of just took wind of it. So we thought it would be a, a time to kind of replace both the laundry machine and the dryer at the same time. So that, that kind of costed us like $1,500. So all in all, like you're thinking like, you know, within the last three years, we kind of had to put in like almost, I would say four or $5,000 into the home, right? That was kind of shocking to us just, just because we had that home inspection and we thought some of this stuff was really going to last a lot longer than, than it would have been what it was said in the, the home inspection report. 
Yeah, that's definitely true for myself as well, because my house got a pretty clean slate, but then my basement got flooded, my shingles got torn off, similar to you. So certainly there are a lot of surprises as a homeowner. So it's good to have emergency savings. And I'm just curious, when you became a homeowner, did you kind of keep a contingency fund of extra savings just to be able to pay for this expense? Like you didn't put every penny towards the down payment and deposit, did you? For our emergency fund, we we always made sure that we had one. It's usually about six months worth of expenses. So we kind of just made sure that we always had that uh, socked away in a high interest savings account so that whenever we needed it, like for these instances, we would have have it to access and kind of pay for things as, as an as needed basis. That's great. It's certainly better than using your credit card. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. Great. So your story, along with mine, was featured in Toronto Life magazine back in the summer. How did this all come about and how did your family and friends react? Yeah, it was actually a surprise to me. What had happened was uh, Toronto Life, they wanted to showcase homeowners that were under 30. And they were kind of looking for individuals like uh, you and myself, Sean. And they kind of happened to hear my story through a personal finance blog uh, that I started that talked about my overall homeownership experience. So they kind of reached out to me and asked if I was interested in being featured on it. It was actually great for for me. um, And I'm sure it was great for you as well, because I think it kind of hits me personally, because we have friends and family, a lot of whom also are trying to get into the homeownership. And it kind of gave them a bit more inspiration and a lot of hope because, you know, we had people around us that kind of felt like giving up and thought that, you know, it'd be impossible. But I think our story or or that article kind of gives that encouragement that, you know, that homeownership dream is alive. It's still possible to afford a house in Toronto. So, you know, I was just happy to be happy to be a part of it. And I was kind of honored to be featured with you and the rest of the group. And I'm sure you got some praise from people out there, the readers as well, because like you mentioned, it's just nice to hear a positive story out there about real estate rather than reading all those negative headlines about how millennials will never own houses. Always good to hear positive news. A lot of millennials are choosing the condo lifestyle often in the downtown, but you went with a house in the suburbs. Talk about why you chose to live in a house instead of a condo and what are some of the pros and cons of suburban living? We really wanted to own a piece of land and have our own space. We were really looking for a detached bungalow and it kind of gave us the best of both worlds. So something in the middle of a condo and a detached two-story house. So a detached two-story house would be kind of too big for us, but a, a condo wouldn't give us the privacy or space that we really wanted to have. For Amanda personally, she was totally against living in a condo um, because she was living in at the condo at the time already with her parents. She had like the worst experience ever. Like she had loud neighbors. So she had a neighbor next to her that had a dog that a dog that barked throughout the night. And then she had a neighbor that was right above her unit that worked out every night at nine o'clock on a treadmill and was uh, using dumbbells. And you can hear all this banging, loud running sounds uh, from the treadmill and the machine. And you can hear the groaning. So you can imagine like, you know, the thought of living in a unit where, you know, the walls are kind of razor thin and you're able to hear the neighbor next to you. That's not something that we kind of wanted to get ourselves into. On top of that, we actually couldn't accept the fact of paying like $500 to $600 a month on maintenance fees. To maintain common areas and amenities, we will likely never end up using anyways. For us, it was kind of hard to swallow. And that's one of the reasons that we actually didn't end up considering condos in the first place. We always felt that, you know, we could do a better job ourselves managing the property if we saved that extra $500 to $600 a month ourselves. So at the end, um, you know, we, we did offer that 
catch bungalow because we wanted that greater flexibility. We wanted to have that option in case we do outgrow our house, we would have the flexibility to add an extension or to rebuild on top of our existing home. And the major thing for us is like we really wanted to have a garage, a backyard and some outdoor space for us to enjoy in the summertime. So these were things that, you know, uh, the condo option uh, definitely wouldn't allow us to have. This is um, one of the reasons why we, we did decide to go for the detached bungalow. It really gave us the best of both worlds. And those are some great points. And certainly the maintenance fees and condo board politics are one of the not so fun part about dealing with a condo. So certainly if you're buying a condo, do your homework. Because, and if you're buying a condo that's a resale one, find out who your neighbors are and perhaps go there when their guard is down on a weekday evening because you don't want to be surprised about stuff like that once you've already moved in and realized, like you said, that the walls are paper thin and you can hear everything in your unit. Exactly, exactly. So you bought your home in Scarborough. Scarborough has unfairly gained a negative reputation over the years. Why is Scarborough a good place to invest in real estate? Uh, What are some of the myths that you've heard about Scarborough? So for me personally, I was born and raised Scarborough my entire life. So for me, right off the bat, Scarborough is a great place to live. But um, I'm going to be completely unbiased in this case and just be devil's advocate for one second. Looking around in Toronto in general, if we're looking at areas or homes in Toronto right now, Scarborough actually has large lots. So if you're looking for a detached bungalow, Scarborough is one of like the most affordable spots right now in Toronto. So fundamentally, it, it makes a lot of sense to give you a An idea on size, a typical detached bungalow in Scarborough has a 40 feet frontage and a 100 to 150 feet uh, depth. And that's like enough to build a two-story double garage house, right? So there's a lot of potential there already. So you can already see it with a lot of houses in parts of Scarborough where there's a lot of rebuilding that's being done. And you you see these massive two-story garage homes being built already. And if you start thinking about the restrictions on development in the city, there's solid fundamentals to support strong price growth in Scarborough over the long term. A lot of the condos, if you think about it, that are being built in the city or, or in the downtown core, they're about one to two bedrooms. There's kind of little thought to, given to family-sized condos. So my guess in the next 10 to 15 years, a lot of people will kind of outgrow their condos and need to move out. And Scarborough looks like it's going to be a, a close or a preferred alternative or option for th- for them when the time comes. And in terms of pricing, like when I was talking about that earlier, Scarborough is kind of like the only area left where you can buy a detached bungalow in the city for under $700,000 within minutes to a TTC subway station. So for me personally, I actually work near the Ean Center and I live near Warden Station and I, I can actually get to the Ean Center in, the, in under 40 minutes. I can drive there in less than 20 minutes. So it just, it's just such an attractive option if somebody or your viewers are looking for an area where they can actually see themselves there for long, um, be able to potentially start a family and outgrow their space, but have that potential to kind of build in an extension or to kind of rebuild on their existing property. It gives them that option there as well if they, if they do decide to do that. There's always this myth of reputation that Scarborough's ghetto or dangerous, and a lot of that is a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, when looking at the sheer size of Scarborough compared to the other cities in Toronto pre-amalgamation, Scarborough actually covers a lot of space. When you start thinking about it, like any city, there's going to be areas within the city where there's a higher concentration of crime, and Scarborough's no exception. There's, there's going to be areas within Scarborough that have lower rates of crime and higher rates of crime. 
picking an area or a desirable area, you just have to be patient and do your research and, and look for areas where there's less crime that occurs there, if that's something that's a concern. The other thing that I would actually add as well is like this negative reputation about Scarborough's I personally think it's unfounded and, you know, the media deserves a lot of the blame. For example, uh, Jane and Finch is an intersection in North Europe, but we'll never say North Europe is dangerous. And I don't know why. However, when something happens in Scarborough, you'll, you'll hear the media say that something happened in Scarborough and not name the actual intersection itself. So I think it kind of works to my benefit at the end of the day or our benefit, Sean, because I also know that you own a home in Scarborough as well. You know, if that's if that's what's keeping prices low in Scarborough, then I'm, I'm happy for it because, you know, it, it kind of worked out for me because I was I was able to buy a detached home in Toronto, even though Scarborough is in Toronto. So, you know, kudos to us. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, certainly Scarborough is like any other city. It has good parts and bad parts. I, I can say firsthand uh, from the area that I live in, Scarborough Southwest, I mean, there are houses that are worth a few million dollars, some houses that are worth almost $5 million. So it's, it, I'm in one of the most affluent areas. But as soon as I tell somebody that I'm in Scarborough, it, it's like one of my relatives have passed away. They, they feel sorry for me, which I don't think should be the case because Scarborough is still a great city and it has some great pockets throughout. It's just unfortunate that it's gained that reputation because of the media over the years. So certainly if you're looking for an affordable place to buy a detached home, um, I certainly would consider Scarborough. It's one of the more affordable areas of Toronto. Now, similar to me, you also strive towards financial independence. What does financial independence mean to you? And what are the steps you're taking in order to achieve it? And how can others follow in your footsteps? Yeah, no, this is a, a great question and it kind of hits um, me personally um, because, you know, I, I developed an interest in personal finance and financial freedom out of need. Um, for me, it was kind of a struggle, like um, right before I graduated, it was tough finding full-time employment. So for me, I kind of bounced around. I worked eight different jobs in literally two within two years of graduating. Oh my goodness. I really got to see. Yeah, no, it was crazy. Um, I, I really got to see firsthand how much some people hated or dreaded going to work. I've worked with some of the smartest people I, I ended up knowing, um, but they kind of remained complacent, trapped, afraid of change, or afraid to leave because they had car payments, rent or mortgage payments that they had to make, and they felt that they had no other option. I used to also work at a, at a bank, so I, I used to see financial advisors sell bank, sell bank products that, that they knew benefited the bank more than the customers themselves. So I didn't want to fall trapped to that. At the same time, I didn't want to other people handling my own finances. And on top of that, I didn't want to work for somewhere. I didn't see myself working for long. So I, I knew that in order for me to kind of break away from all of this, I, I had to take my finances a lot more seriously. And I kind of had to take it under my own control. So for me, like literally speaking, financial freedom means being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want without having to worry about making me money. And Amanda and I are both kind of on the same board um, in this. Uh, we both plan to do it before we turn 40. So that means, you know, if we, at that time, if we choose not to go to work the next day because we don't want to, we don't have to go to work. As easy as that, you know, if we wanted to start a business and, and do something we really enjoyed doing because we felt right about it or we felt passionate about it, we wanted to have that option to be able to do. So for us, how we kind of position ourselves or trying to make sure that we get to that stage is um, by saving the 50% of our paycheck that we used to save. But so we're, we're doing that as well um, that we used to save. So what we're actually doing right now is we're actually saving 
60% of our take-home pay and using a portion of that to put towards um, extra mortgage payments on our house. We're maximizing our RSSPs and we're maxing out our TFSAs where, wherever possible. So being able to live on pretty much one of our incomes it's it's been a tremendous help uh, for us personally because you know that that gives us the opportunity to kind of build up that build up that savings or investments over time and and hopefully by the time we turn 40 we'll be able to kind of do what we want at that time and i think it's it sounds crazy that we're living off half our incomes but um like i said like you know in university um we lived off of half of it and now like like i said we're able to save 60% of our incomes and and that the reason we're able to do this is because we kind of had that good, solid habit and discipline from the get-go. So we're able to save more than the 50% that we used to save. Yeah, and certainly on that point, you don't have to continue to live like a student when you graduate, but it certainly helps. But it's important to be aware of lifestyle inflation, which means that when you get that pay raise at work or you get promoted or go to a better paying job, don't end up spending all the extra money that you make certainly take advantage of that extra money and make those extra mortgage payments as you mentioned exactly yeah no no i actually forgot to mention that as well yeah no you're exactly right so like we're used to living on a student income so as our incomes grew we got promotions we continued to maintain our spending levels so we were able to save all that additional uh, increases and and that really is gonna be what makes us able to retire by 40 hopefully Great. And I have one final question for you. You got married in the summertime. Now, weddings can be expensive. They can be almost as much as the down payment on a house, sometimes even more. How did you manage to have your wedding without derailing your financial goals like financial freedom and financial independence? The first thing that really helped us, and I'll be totally honest with you, is that we bought a house together before we got married. So that, that helped us a lot. For us, that meant a lot to us, not only to our relationship, but towards our financial goals, because we didn't want to be a couple that got married and have not, and not have a place of our own. So from the get-go, we both knew that we needed to buy our house first. So that, so that was a tremendous help. Because almost everything we, we had saved at the time was going towards our house. What ended up happening was we had to make sacrifice and delay our wedding by almost two years. So we didn't get married until two years after we bought our house. So that, that did a lot to help us from derailing us from our plans, so to speak. But I think going back to the point about having discipline and building good habits, because we bought our house and we had to make our mortgage payments, a lot of our money was already tied to the down payment on our house. So that actually did a lot to us psychologically. Again, it really forced us to create a budget and literally work out how we were going to get married in two years time. So we literally worked out by individual expense categories for the wedding, how much we would have to save in the next two years to kind of make it work. I can honestly say though, Sean, had we gotten married first and not bought our house, what would have likely happened is that we would have tapped into that sizable down payment that we had saved and and we would have likely um, gone way over our wedding budget. So for us, like buying that house was actually more advantageous to us because it it kind of discouraged us from buying things or kind of falling trapped to buying a lot of stuff that other couples would buy or spend on their wedding. So we kind of, for example, like uh, some things that we did to kind of cut costs or, or be a little bit more frugal. Uh, yeah, a little bit more frugal. You got it. Was that, you know, we would use, we would try to limit the number of flowers or fresh flowers that we use. We would have more foliage. 
We would um, do a lot of our wedding decor ourselves. We would ask our friends and family to kind of help with making decor and helping us set up on the day of the wedding instead of hiring like a wedding planner. So there was a lot of things that we were able to do. And we were able to do this because I guess, so to speak, we bought our house first. So so it kind of left us with not a lot of money or to play with, uh, so to speak, uh, when we did have our wedding or, or what we could afford to spend when we did have that wedding. That's that's uh great advice and certainly I really like the strategy as you mentioned having different categories for your various wedding expenses so certainly that's a great way to not have your wedding go over budget yeah no no it, it definitely it definitely helps I, I have to say like that uh, there's plenty of times we kind of would look back at our budget and say oh you know we actually can't we can't buy this it's it's you know we're gonna we're gonna go over our budget so that having that budget next to us when we're talking to like um, different vendors or whatnot, it, it kind of helped us um, keep our reality in check. Well, Stephen, it's been great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, of course. So for me, actually, Sean, you know, I have a personal finance blog myself. It's www.youngvestors.ca. It's a blog that talks about my personal journey, Amanda and I's personal journey toward financial freedom, where we plan on retiring before 40. So it's got a lot of tips, things that we do already um, to kind of help us save money or, or things that we are doing or think in terms of investing as well. There's also a section that talks about life lessons, that talks about mistakes that we've made on our path to financial freedom. So I, I'm sure it's something that your, your audience may be interested in as well. So um, I encourage them to take a look and you know visit the website. Yeah, I mean, as we were talking about offline, it's got a bunch of great homeowner war stories, as I like to call it. So certainly if you're a homeowner or an expiring one, be sure to check out Stephen's blog. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.